stories with me, Neil Kagram. Today we're joined by Ryan Campbell. Ryan, how's things going? Uh, good, thanks, mate. Yes, uh, you know, surviving uh, the lockdown here in the Netherlands, which is, um, you know, obviously everywhere around the world it's tough, but, you know, I've got a, a three-year-old and a five-year-and-a-half-year-old who, um, you know, not going to school or daycare, and that's it, it's a bit of a juggling act, but... Um, Look, at the end of the day, I think we all have to go through these um, tough periods in what is a tough situation for the world. Yeah, it's crazy times. So let's take it all the way back with yourself. You're born in Perth. What first attracted you to the sport? Um, I, I didn't have a choice, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I'm the youngest of four kids. Um, and my earliest recollections of my life are being in the backyard playing cricket with my older brothers and older sister, um, you know, and then we, when we get to winter, we would be playing, we'd be kicking a footy around and, and, and playing AFL. So, you know, it, it was basically, that's how we were brought up. There was no video games back those days. And, you know, in Australia, like I say, you played cricket in summer and you played footy in, in winter. And I loved all of it. I, you know, I loved the game and I, you know, I, I pretty much wanted to, to be Rod Marsh or I wanted to be Dennis Lilly or whoever, you know, whoever I saw on the TV. And um, that's where it all began. And, and, and my passion for sport was ignited. Like I say, a lot to do with, um, you know, my family. My, my dad was a, uh, was a bit of a gun cricketer and footballer in the country where, where he lived a lot of his life. And, you know, he, they always, my mum and dad were always very supportive of any sport that we played. And, um, yeah, we, we ended up following that route and, and eventually, I guess, I needed to decide whether I was going to be an AFL player or a, a cricket player. I had the opportunity to, you know, to, to have a crack at both of those sports and, you know, thankfully for me, I decided that cricket was the one and, um, yeah, I, I chose cricket and, and here I am today. So what was your first club side back home and then also what attracted you to wicketkeeping? Yeah, so I guess my, my first club team was, um, I played for Belcatta, which was my local club. It was just down the road. And um, Belcatta was a feeder system to like the, the whacker pennant cricket you needed to go to. And they were a feeder system to North Perth. So I played all my, you know, played early on for Belcatta. And when I was good enough in, in under 15s, I think it was uh, back then, um, you know, I was selected to go down to North Perth and, and yeah, I was attracted. I, I loved it. I was never a wicketkeeper, though, as a kid. I actually was a spin bowler. In fact, I, I made state squads as, as an off-spin bowler. And I think even to this day, if you ask my father, he thinks that I should have always stuck to being a, an off-spinner. 17, I took a different route because I actually moved to the country. Uh, I didn't think I was going to be a professional sportsman. And, and my sister was living in, in a place called Kalgoorlie, which is... Uh, a massive gold mining um, town in, in, in Western Australia, about 600 kilometres east of Perth. And I, I went there to, to work, basically. I'd finished my schooling and wanted to work, but it was a massive sporting town, you know, so I could play football at the top level there and I could play cricket at the top level. And that made it easy for me to get jobs and, and working. And I worked in the gold refinery, which was a fantastic opportunity for me. Um, played for, you know, the, the country 11 and I played for Eastern Goldfields uh, at Country Week. So I kind of skipped the whole 
state under 17, state under 19s, which is, you know, as you can see in today's world, you get into the Australian under 19s or the Indian under 19s or the English under 19s, you're kind of earmarked for that. Oh, well, he's going to be a really good player. So I kind of went a different route, but, you know, I, I played in a, in a final for the Eastern Goldfields at the Wacker um, and we did really well and we won that game. And there was an old guy sitting in the stands from a club called Bayswood and Morley and saw a fast bowler called Tim Brooks and myself as the wicketkeeper. And, and I had gone back to wicketkeeping at that, at that point. And he invited us. He said, we want you to come down and play at Bayswood and Morley. And it was a bit of to and fro between North Perth, who was my junior club, and, and Bayswater. But, you know, I chose Bayswater. And then Bayswater is, was my home. And, and it was a fantastic club. And, you know, from there, I was lucky enough to be selected in, you know, in the – WA Colts team and eventually Rod Marsh invited me to the Australian Cricket Academy and I guess as they say once you're at that academy you know it was almost a finishing school and, and they did a great job and you know I'll cherish my year that I spent there. Yes that was 1994 is that correct? Um, and who yeah. else was in, in your in your at your age group? Any other household yeah, well, names? Well, to be honest, so there was 15 guys that went to that academy group, that intake. I think it, the numbers are something like 14 played for their state and something like nine played for their country. So, you know, I was lucky enough to be with Andrew Simon, Shane Lee, um, you know, these guys that became Dan Marsh, who was a very good player for, for um, Tasmania. Um, yeah, I, I was very lucky that, you know, the squad that I was in, Brad Young, Mark Harrity, all these guys, um, you know, went on Matthew Nicholson as a fast bowler, Brad Williams as another fast bowler. You know, it was an amazing environment to be around. And, you know, every day you just learn from your, your mates. You listen to Rod Marsh, whatever he said was gospel. And to be honest, Rod was the one for me. I, I was the wicketkeeper. I, I was sent there as the backup wicketkeeper to Tim Zura for WA. At the time, I got a knock on the door. Um, and in walks this fella, you know, in my opinion, where well, he was a geeky looking fella with big ears. And it's, hi, I'm Adam Gilchrist. Um, I just wanted to come say hi. I'm going to Perth. I've been invited to go and play in Perth. And as you can imagine, as a youngster thinking, geez, well, I thought I was going to be the next wiki keeper. Now you're definitely going to be the next wiki keeper. Um, I, I thought my time was up almost, you know, at, at 21, 22 years of age. But it was Rod Marsh who pulled me aside and said, mate, I want you to try something. And he opened the batting with me in a game against England. And I, you know, did really well and scored at a pretty brisk rate. And he, he pulled me aside afterwards and said, look, I hope you understand that's your future. You're going to be an opening batsman. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. I, I went back, I, I opened the batting in my club team, ended up getting picked for WA and Mike Hussey and myself. Uh, were the opening combination for probably, you know, five or six years for WA. And like later on, I went, I ended up having to wicket keep, obviously, with Gilly going away a, a bit. But, you know, at the start, it was all about batting because I didn't want to not play for WA. I wanted to be a professional sportsman. And, you know, when you, you're thrown those sort of curve balls, you either sink into a corner and whimper away or you, you make, you find a different way. And, you know, for me, it was batting and it was opening the batting in my style, I guess. And I was lucky enough that our coach, Wayne Clark, 
was um, he's a very good man manager and, and he wanted me and the team. And Tom Moody, the, the captain of the time, went out of his way to make myself and Mike Hussey feel really comfortable as the opening batters. And, you know, I think we were lucky enough to be probably a part of one of WA Cricket's greatest ever teams. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to be a part of it. Can you give us any tips and advice in terms of opening the batting as a mindset, facing the new ball, fresh bowlers? And also, what was it like um, sharing it with Mike Hussey, one of the great Australian batsmen of the, of the, of the last yeah, era? I, well, I, I, I'll be very clear on here. You have to do it your own way. You know, I could never be Mike Hussey. I, I couldn't. You know, I was an aggressive player that needed to take it to the fast bowlers of the opposition team. And, you know, you, you'd rock up the Sheffield Shield games. And in those times, you know, we, we saw a glimpse with Michael Slater. He was, you know, he went about it in a dashing sort of way. And I was always naturally aggressive. I couldn't be any other way. So, you know, to put myself and Mike together, for instance, the very first time I opened the batting, I didn't know I was opening the batting. I played my first game batting down the order and Wayne Clark had decided that I was going to the top. I was going to replace Mark Lavender as, uh, as Mike's partner. He didn't tell me because I, he knew as my character, I would have worried about it. But what did happen was I rocked up on the day of the game and thinking that Murray Goodman was going to open, be opening because he came into the team. And, you know, Wayne just pulled me aside with Mike and said, look, we think you two are our future. But he'd already told Mike about it. And so Mike had already had a list of how we were going to go about it. This is what we needed to, to achieve to be special and to be successful. Um, and I just and part of that, he was very clear and I was very clear. I have to be me and you have to be you. And, you know, in the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we'll talk about it all the time. We basically said, let's get to 10. He would say, let's get to 10. I would say, yep, as fast as we can. And let's just keep going. Um, and that, that, was, that was the way we went. It also helped, of course, that, you know, I was lucky enough when I looked up on the board at the Wacker to see Justin Langer, Damian Martin, Simon Kadic, Tom Moody, Adam Gilchrist, all sitting behind me thinking, well, you know, I, I can go as hard as I want because uh, we got a bit behind me. So, yeah, mate, it was just opening the batting is one of those things. You have to find your own way. You can't be manufactured into it. And I think we've seen that where, you know, guys have been made to open because the, the team as a whole. And look, they do a good job, but you've got to be a natural, you know, and, and there's different ways of going about it. David Warner goes about it his way. Joe Burns went about it his way. Joe Burns, and that's not being disrespectful to Joe Burns, but he did it his way and found it, it was a bit hard. You know, now we've seen other openers. You know, Chris Rogers was a great example. Chris Rogers, technically, probably you could pick it apart, his, his, his uh, way of going about it, his technique, but he found a way and he, and he was mentally strong and did it like I say, his way and became a, a great player. Um, first class, his first class numbers, you know, uh, are equal with the best around the world. So like I say, I, I just, my advice to anyone is you've got to go about your own way. But the one thing that I'll keep coming back to, and this is, I guess, the coach in me now, you have to have an elite basic game. You know, 
in today's world, players play 360 degrees and it's unbelievable. You know, the ramps, the scoops, the reverse, everything. And that's just in the white ball game. But under extreme pressure in four-day cricket or in one-day cricket when the ball is swinging or the ball uh, seeming around or in T20 when it's a final and the pressure is on, if you can't go back to your elite basic game and stand up to the pressure of brilliant bowling, you're going to be found out. And as we know in today's world, in, in international cricket especially, mate, everyone's got videos of everyone. So they're going to probe and they're going to find issues and what are they going to do and they're going to come up with a tactic. So if you haven't got that basic game, and I say this to all my kids, worry about the ramps and the scoops later on and the reverses. That's great. Practice it. Do it, all that sort of stuff. But work on your basic game. And if you've got issues or technical flaws, you need to fix them because you're going to get found out. Do you think in terms of making it to the highest level, whether it be you know, states, county cricket in the UK, for example, or international, that if you don't have a solid game to play off the back foot, you're going to find it very difficult. So, Especially in the UK where the pitches are a little bit slower. You know, yeah. uh, youngsters almost are facing slower bowlers, pitch-up bowlers, swing bowlers. They're always on the front foot and making that almost transition. Um, do you, what, what are your views on that? Obviously, in Australia, well, you growing up on the whack, it zips around. Um, Australians are known to having a good game to play off the back foot. What are your views on that? Well, mate, if, like you say, I was brought up in Perth. If I didn't play off the back foot, I was going to die. And, and that's this cold, hard facts. You're going to get hit in the head. And to be honest, I, I think in today's world, part of the techniques have been so front foot dominated it is why people are getting hit in the head so often. It is why, you know, helmets have given everyone, a, I guess, a false sense of security. When blokes are playing the hook or pull shot, when, in all honesty, their technique shouldn't be standing up to it. They should be just ducking and diving. Um, so, yeah, you, you do need to play off the back foot and off the front foot. In fact, the greatest example, in my opinion, is Virat Kohli. Now, Virat Kohli is an Indian and plays in India where you think the wickets don't bounce, so he's just going to be a front-foot player. But, mate, his record when he comes to England or Australia is outstanding because his transference of way to go back is as quick as a flash, and he gets there and he gets in great positions. And, you know, to me, I, I think we've seen a lot of front-foot bullies who T20, in all honesty, and, again, I, I'm not going to be here to you know, knock down T20 cricket because it is, it's very exciting. I'll watch it. I, I love watching. I love guys playing it. But it has bred a new version of big flat track bullies. They, they put their front foot straight down the middle of the wicket. It's generally on a flat wicket, small boundaries, big bats, swing through the line and hit it for six and go, oh, yeah, that's great. But when they get found out, when when serious pace comes on or the wicket suddenly gives you a little bit, like I said before, they get, they get found out. And, you know, to me, I would really enthuse and, and push for every youngster out there, front and back, front and back. You have to do it. And to be honest, the back foot is also, and again, this is being a Perth boy, it's probably one of the things that I look for in a player is, how they pick their bat up. If you're not picking your bat up, doesn't matter if you go back or forward or whatever, 
you're going to probably get hit in the head anyway because your hands are too low. And that, that's the difference between subcontinent players who are generally their hands are a bit low. But, you know, a great pickup. If you look at the Brian Laras, the Ricky Pontings, the Virat Kohlis, don't look at anything else. Look at how they pick their batter. And then I think the secrets will be unre- unveiled, unveiled. Even someone like Steve Smith, who's so unique, but at the point of delivery, watch where his bat gets to. And that pickup of his is so important to his game. The rest sort of, you know, goes with it. And, and like I say, to, to all young players out there, you're picking your bat up is so important to also playing forward as well as back. And then when you made your ODI debut for Australia 2002 against New Zealand, how was that one of the proudest moments of your career? Yeah, 100%. You know, obviously I was um, uh, living in Gilly's shadow, so to speak, for WA. I was the keeper by then. And, you know, I played in an era of such amazing Australian cricket. To be honest, I didn't think I'd ever play for Australia. I knew that Gilly would hardly ever miss a game. And, you know, to get that call up, to go to the SCG, um, you know, for my mum and dad to fly over there and sit, amongst 40,000 people and watch me go out to bat. You know, even the little things of when I arrived, I think I arrived about 11 o'clock one night, two days before the game, um, and went to training the next day at the SCG. And you walk into the ground, you walk into the change rooms, you know, where do I sit? I'm looking for a West Australian guy so I can sort of say good day and, um, you know, Andrew Simons was selected by the by then, so I knew some some of the guys, and I played against them all. But you know, you don't feel as confident. But you know, I walked into the into the change rooms, and Steve War's name is emblazoned in his bit, and right next to him is Ryan Campbell in gold on a gold embroidered uh, plate with my name, my Australian kit hanging there. It's like. Geez, <laughs> this is the real thing. And, you know, to, to actually have the opportunity then to train with the guys. And I spent probably, you know, an hour on my own with Shane Warne just so he could bowl everything he had. And again, the funny thing is, as a wicketkeeper, you, you, you back yourself to know what spinners bowl. But just to have that opportunity to listen to him talk about what he's going to try and do and what he wants to do and what he wants batsmen to do. Um, was just an amazing experience. And then the next day, obviously, I received my cap and, you know, sat there and just was the noise it made. We I think we fielded first and the sound it made, you know, from 40,000 Sydney siders screaming Australians and, you know, wanting Kiwi blood. I think we lost the game, to be honest. But, um, look, it, it was fantastic. And, and to be honest, it was over before I knew it because that night... I literally, we had one, by the time we got back to the, to the hotel, it was probably 11 o'clock and everyone actually said, Michael Bevan was very clear. We all had to meet up for a beer because it was my you know first game and we had a quick beer. I was on a flight 5am the next morning. I had to fly back to Perth and play in a shield game that day. So I, I literally didn't even have a chance to get it all in. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'll always remember that, that day and you know I think well I played once more and it's a great it's a great thing again as a person I, I guess who I always think that I didn't really achieve that much in cricket I, I was I was lucky to play 10 years for WA and 
you know, I, I sort of say to people, oh, I only played twice for Australia. And it, it takes other people to remind you that, mate, you played twice for Australia in an era which was unbelievable. And, and that kind of, you know, really makes takes the pressure off. And, you know, you sort of think, yeah, well, actually, that probably was a pretty cool thing to do. And, you know, maybe one day when my five-year-old uh, gets old enough and, he, and if he asks, I'll, I might show him a video of that day. You mentioned some of the greats that you played with, Warren, McGrath, Steve Waugh. Aside from their actual talent, their playing talent, is there anything that kind of stood out to you that, you could say that's the reason why they were at that top elite level was was their mindset slightly different did they train differently can you give us a little it, insight it, it was very it's very easy actually it, mental toughness i've never seen mentally tougher people it didn't matter what position they were in they backed their game and they backed their teammates um and they were just never flustered you know, it didn't matter that people could be calling for your blood or, you know, wanting you out of the team or, you know, the, the opposition, it's five for 60 and we're chasing 300. They're going to win. They, they back themselves to win the game. Of course, it doesn't always happen, but they, they, their characters never change. And what I noticed of being lucky enough to play in a time of amazing players, and like I say, the Langers, the Martins, the Cadditches, the Gilchrists, those players, Tom Moody in the WA team, Mike Hussey, they never changed. They were the first to have a beer with you. After they played 100 test matches, they still come and have a beer with you. They still sit down. They want to talk cricket. How you been, mate? They remember, you know, oh, how's your wife? Now? How going? How's this? How's that? They're just normal people. And, and I think... A lot of the, the, the public don't get to see that, although I guess we see a bit more of it now because of social media. Um, you know, I guess people are, feel a bit more contacted to their heroes and stuff. But, you know, the, the actual greats, they're just really good people. And, you know, I, I've been asked about Adam Gilchrist a million times in my career. If anyone should dislike Adam Gilchrist, it should be me. He was the one in my way. Wherever I went, he was in the way. But he's one of my greatest mates because he's a great person. And even the way he walked into the, my room at the academy just to go out of his way to have that conversation with me, that just tells you about the guy. And, you know, that, that, that's what always stick in my mind. Those great players, they're great people. And I, I, I'll always remind my players if, when I coach, mate, never forget where you started from. Always remember your roots because... We may get to certain heights one day, but elite sport, it's hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And the old rusty gate, as we say, will swing back and hit you in the face one day. And when you get, when you're down in the dumps, you want those good people and you want those, your friends from your roots to be able to help you out. So don't, don't change, don't change the person. So yeah, for me, it's their character. It's how good of people they are, which, which made them great. Also in the in the two thousand three World Cup squad, but didn't quite make the final cut. Did you feel that you did deserve a spot in the final playing eleven at any point uh, down the line? Oh, what was your thoughts oh, during that, I, that I period? Reckon, yeah, I, I reckon of all the the things that I look back at, the two thousand and three World Cup was the one that hurt me the most. Um, Australia, you know, you take fifteen players to a World Cup. And it's always the one, it's that and the Ashes. Generally, you're always taking your backup wicketkeeper. 
And, you know, for me, I was in really good form. I was probably the leading run scorer for Australia A. Um, I was batting down the list and I was keeping really well. And, you know, I guess at that time people had talked about me mainly because I started ramping and things like that. But I was ready. And I remember the day it was Australia A were playing Sri Lanka on, uh, I think it was New Year's Day. We, we had a fixture and they were also selecting the team. And Alan Border was the coach of the Australian A team and he was also a selector. And he pulled me aside and actually said to me that I'm literally going to be the most unluckiest person in Australia right now because I was going to be the 16th player. And the reasons for that were Michael Bevan had a hamstring injury and they weren't 100% sure how long he was going to be out for, which weakened their batting at some point. And then Darren Lehman got suspended against Sri Lanka for I think he racially vilified someone and he got suspended for three games. So he was going to miss the first three games of the World Cup. So that was two batters that they felt if they it was going to come to me or they could take Jimmy Ma, who was a you know outstanding batsman and his record you know in Mercantile Mutual in domestic one day cricket was outstanding for Queensland. They were going to err on the side that Jimmy might be able to keep. Um, he's not a keeper, but if we throw him the gloves in a backup role, then he might have to do it. So they decided because of those injuries and suspensions that I was going to miss. And like I say, I, that was that was probably the most disappointing moment for me because I, I sort of was in the form of my life and I felt I was at the peak of my career and ready to go. But, you know, because of a few different circumstances, I missed out. And then moving on from there, you had a couple more seasons playing state cricket. And then you had the stint at the, was it the uh, the ICL? Well, to be honest, I retired from cricket quite early. I was only, I think I was 31 or just about, or maybe just turned 32. Um, and I was at the peak of my powers again. I was still playing well. I made 100 for WA the, you know, the week before. Um, but I, I was... I'm very much a person that I never wanted to keep playing just because it was my paycheck and I was just hanging on because I wanted to play for that. It was about the love of the game for me. And I know that sounds a bit corny, but that's just the person I am. In my private life, I was so busy. I was actually working in the media. I was never going to be a coach. I was going to work in the media. I was working I was on a radio show. I was working on TV already with uh, the news. I even had my own travel show. It was called Postcards WA. I was one of the hosts of Postcards WA. So I, I literally was, cricket was getting in my way um, a little bit. And that's my future. So I felt I'd planned really well for the afterlife. And I, and I remember I came back from the, from the uh, I think we toured Adelaide or something and I made a hundred. And the great man, David Hooks, who was just a, such a wonderful man. And obviously, you know, left us way too early he had a, a, a tv show on fox and i was actually invited to come on that show and we we were wherever we were we flew up together and i remember asking him you know hooks he just out of curiosity mate, well, when do you know when it's time to go and he said camo it doesn't matter what anyone says only you will know and it'll be this voice and it'll get louder and louder and if you choose to ignore it 
you won't enjoy the rest of your career. You, it, you know, it's time to go. And, and that voice to me came at about three in the morning. I was at, um, you know, I was in bed. I just woke up bolt upright and just thought, I'm done. Like, I, I don't want, I just, I've had enough. And so, yeah, so I, I went and saw the coach, uh, Wayne Clark. And we were actually due to fly somewhere for a T20 game. I think it was one of the early two T20 games. And, you know, I just said, mate, I'm done. I've, I've had enough. I'm, I'm going to call it quits. And um, so for, the, for me, it, it was done quite early. And then I was so busy with work. You know, I, I loved the game. Don't get me wrong. I, I still loved it. But I was so busy with everything else. And I tried to keep myself away from cricket because even though I, I commentated on it and stuff, I, I kind of stayed away because I loved it. And it was, I was working breakfast radio for a, a show called Nova FM and I was, the, you know, the sporty guy and, you know, talking absolute rubbish every morning. Um, and all of a sudden on a Friday night, I had a few under my belt and uh, I had a phone call from Damien Martin who said to me, look, mate, I'm at the ICL. My team desperately needs an opening batsman or wicketkeeper. And I know you haven't played for three years. I think it was two or three years. I need you to come. And I said, mate, I'm, I don't even play anymore, mate. I'm this busy. I've got these jobs. I'm, you know, I just can't. And he literally said, how much? What do you want? It's six weeks. How much do you want? I said, mate, come on. I'm not like that. You know that. And he goes, no, no, just say it. So I just whipped out a figure and just ignored it and kept drinking. Suddenly, my phone rang again. He said, mate, it's a done deal. What? We'll see you in, th I think it was about five weeks or something. I was like, oh, geez, <laughs> what am I going to do here? So, yeah, I, I very quickly had to get back in. I had to go. I ended up playing club cricket at my local club and just to get try and get back into it. And man, I really enjoyed it. But it, it probably ignited the passion back in me for cricket. Um, you know, the ICL was a great experience. Obviously, it wasn't the IPL, but. Um, you know, there's a few dodgy dealings going on, I think, throughout the tournament. But uh, I really enjoyed the game and, and that probably got me back into it. And hence, after that, I probably started to get back in. You know, I, I was always a level three coach. And then I started probably to work my way back into more cricket stuff instead of just solely being in the media. Yeah, and talk us through how the move to Hong Kong came about. Talk us through that period in your life. Yeah. Mate, it, it was a funny one because, um, like I say, I, I was doing coaching stuff. I was helping my local club and I was still working the media. And then a, a friend of mine who was from WA, Charlie Burke, who was the national coach of Hong Kong at the time, he actually rang me and said, look, Cambo, I know this is out of the blue, but I would love you to come up here for a week. And, you know, the Hong Kong team are on the up. You know, we, you know, we, we hope to get, be a bit more successful, but I'd love to run a camp and have you as a, a batting consultant and, you know, just pick our brains and, you know, see if you can add things. And you know, I went up there. I loved the place. I'd never been to Hong Kong, but it was, oh, sorry, I'd been to Hong Kong once for the Hong Kong Sixers, but I'd never, I didn't remember a day of it because obviously the Hong Kong Sixers, all you do is get drunk and, and hit cricket balls. And so my memories of that wasn't great, but, you know, I spent the week there. I really enjoyed that, you know, the job and working there and didn't think much of it. And then a couple of months later, Charlie rang me and said, look, the Kowloon Cricket Club, which in Hong Kong, there's the Kowloon Cricket Club and the Hong Kong Cricket Club. And, you know, they're the two, I guess, the pillars of cricket there. And 
um, the the coach of Hong Kong of the sorry of the Kowloon Cricket Club is leaving, and they are looking for someone to be the coach, director of cricket. You might have to play some some cricket, you know, for them. But if you came, if you're interested, I would love for you to be my assistant coach for the national team. We'll, we'll put it all into one. And so I spoke to the guy, Matty Collins, who was the you know the guy who ran Kowloon Cricket and. You know, they, there was a lot of applications. I definitely wasn't the best coach because I know they had Andy Moles and all these sort of guys apply for it. But I think the lure of me still being able to play was like, yeah, well, let's just go with him. And I guess that was my first real taste of being the, the big cheese, so to speak, of coaching. And um, I loved it in Hong Kong. It's just one of those great places. I was lucky enough, you know, I met my wife there. I had my, my son was born there. Um, you know, my, my program from Cowland Cricket Club, I think I took over a, a program where there was 38 kids involved in cricket there. When I left, there was something like 265 in my program. Um, our, Nash, our senior men's team provided 12 of the 22 uh, national squad members. Uh, I think the under-19s, I think we had eight of the, the 20 under eight, under 19s players as well. So I think whatever I was doing was quite successful. And with that, the national team made two World Cups. You know, we were lucky enough to make two T20 World Cups. So, man, it was a really exciting time for me. And, and I, I loved it. Like I say, Hong Kong's a wonderful place. And I met some great people. And, and I've always say that I was lucky to go there. Did you enjoy then, again, play on the playing side of things? Did you enjoy, was it age 44? You made your yeah, well, debut? <laughs> what was yeah. that like? Uh, mate, I'll tell you. Look, I was in the I World Cup, wasn't it? The 2016. Yeah, yeah World Cup. Yeah, the World Cup. So uh, what was happening was, for I played in the in for Kowloon. I, I played in my, you know, my Premier League team. And I was doing, I did pretty well without sounding like an egotistical bloke. Mate, I, I was the, the clearly the number one batter in the competition in for the three years I was there, or the four years I was there, I led the runs in everything. Um, but the thought of playing for Hong Kong never even, I never even thought about it. I knew in a weird twist of fate, my grandmother, which I never met, she she died when um, my father was, I think, three years of age. So there was this big of a dark secret in the Campbell family, but which never really came to surface until I was probably 35, that my grandmother was actually from Kowloon and, and was from Chinese. And, you know, that sort of got me thinking. But then Charlie Burke just kept saying, mate, we've lost our experienced players. Uh, Irfan Ahmed had been done for um, not fail failing to reveal an approach. He was a very good opening batsman and all-rounder. And, you know, I guess the side was sort of, stunned so to speak that 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 was happening as anyone as everyone was and he just kept on me and on me and I, look the things were I didn't want to go I didn't want to play at that age because I felt one I wasn't I was too old two I didn't want to bring bad press to associate cricket because I think there's a bit of a stigma about oh yeah it's just old blokes who come from another country generally end up playing for, for teams and this, that and the other. I, I was very conscious of that. Um, and the last one was I didn't want to embarrass myself. Like The facts are I was 43, 44, and I didn't really want to do it. But 
the end of the day, Charlie kept going and going and going. I just got sick of him saying anything. Again, he probably got me a few beers deep one night and said, come on, mate, you've got to just say yes. And eventually I said, okay, if you're going to do it, let's do it. Let, stop stop hounding me. Let's go. But I'm, I'm going as the batting coach first. So I'll make sure everyone else is going okay. And then if you pick me in the team, then I'll, I'll play. Um, and then, yeah, so... Eventually, I ended up opening the batting. I think I opened the bowling in a couple of games too, which was just like, oh my God, can someone just let me lie down here for a minute? But mate, again, it's one of those ones where at the time I probably didn't enjoy it. But now I kind of look back and go, you know what? Of course, I would have loved to have done it when I was 30. But I don't think I embarrassed myself too much. I batted pretty well against Afghanistan. I bowled pretty well. Um, you know, and in the end of the day, I helped the young team get to where they wanted to go. So, uh, you know, in the end of the day, I was, I was probably the, the coach, Simon Cook, at that point also had come on board and, and he wanted me to keep playing. He wanted me to play in the World Cricket League in the 50-over competition. Um, and then that's when I sort of had to say, mate, enough's enough. I, I've, I've got to the end here. And, you know, the, luckily the job for, you know, as it turned out, the Netherlands were coming to Hong Kong to play in a vital World Cricket League matches. And I was selected to play for Hong Kong and had to withdraw. And no one knew what the reasons were. When the selectors went around the room saying, well, why isn't he going to play? Because he's, again, we want him in the team. And Charlie Burke was the one that just had to say, look, he can't play. Just let it go. They didn't realise that I was just about to be a named coach of the Netherlands. And, playing against the Netherlands probably wouldn't have been a good look. Yeah, so how did the approach come about with you getting the, the gig with the Netherlands and how have you found it? So 2017, you started your, your role with them? You've been involved in yeah, so T20 qualifiers, World T20 qualifiers. How have you found it so far? Mate, I've loved it. Look, I've been here four years now. Um, I'm again between you and I. I'm probably about to put pen to paper on a new contract, um, which is really nice, you know, for them to to have faith in me. Look, at the end of the day, I was when I was in Perth. I also one of the other things I had was a was a management company, and one of my good friends was Michael Swart, who was um, a very good player for WA. Did well for WA, but was Dutch. And he wanted, you know, the WA thing didn't quite work out and he wanted to play for the Netherlands. So I did the deal to basically get him there and, and talk about. So I had a, I guess, a vested interest in watching Dutch cricket and keeping a close eye on it. And through that, I, I actually had a holiday with my wife. We, we just got engaged and we decided to go on a holiday and we went to Amsterdam to catch up with Swarter. And stayed some time there and, and had drinks with Peter Boren and, and met some of the players. So I kind of knew the guys. And then, you know, through the, the Hong Kong playing against them, I knew enough. But, you know, I applied for the job. And I think Peter Boren was very strong that I was the type of guy that was probably needed. Um, I think Dougie Brown was another that came very close to getting that job for this job. Um, so that, yeah, it was, it was nice. My interview went really well and then they offered it to me. And like I say, it was when I got offered the job, it was like, Oh, do I really want to leave Hong Kong? But in the end of the day, my wife is actually, even though she was born in Hong Kong, she's Dutch. She is a Dutch mother. So she was Dutch passport. My son has a Dutch passport. So it was kind of saying, Oh, you know what? 
let's go because I knew that if I could get the Netherlands playing as good as that they can, they could win the World Cricket League. And if they won the World Cricket League, they were going to go into the Super League, which is then I'm playing, then I'm up against the best 12 teams of the world. And I also knew that, you know, their T20 was okay, but they were a bit lack of consistency. But I reckon I could straighten them out a little bit. And, you know, when I took over, I took over probably a team that played the same eight players or nine players every single game, and, and like a lot of the associate countries. And I don't do it that way. I, I want youngsters to be, you know, put into the teams. I, I need to have a supply line to make sure that cricket in Netherlands is going to be okay down the track when, I, when I've left. You know, I hate when coaches just worry about now and not think about down the track for, for the next generation. So I think we've got to that point now where, you know, we, we had to make some tough decisions. You know, my time here, Peter Boren, you know, him stepping down as captain was one of those big decisions. Um, you know, the not selecting, you know, if anyone knows Dutch cricket, if I had told you when I took over in 2017 that I would go to the World Cup qualifiers in 2019, that I would leave out Boren, Steph Myberg and Wes Barassi, they'd all probably look at me and think I was mad. But the one thing I knew, despite the fact that everything that Ryan Tenderscarter had said, and he was never going to play cricket for the Netherlands ever again, I backed myself that I was going to make a program that was so good and so professional that he would want to come back. And I, I guess if anyone asked me what my greatest achievement here with the Netherlands is, it's getting Ryan Tenderscarter back because that kind of showed that our program was working. And, you know, he's been fantastic for this squad. Obviously, the year off with COVID has, has hurt us because, you know, guys like that are almost done. You know, I, I was hoping to take him to, to uh, Australia for the T20 World Cup. And, you know, we, we've now got a, a group of fast bowlers that are, I think, the, easily the best fast bowling network in the whole of associate cricket. We've got seven or eight to, to look at. Our batting is getting stronger. The Colin Ackerman guys of the world who, who bolster our batting. But again, it's all our youngsters. The guys that you probably weren't given an opportunity. Max O'Dowd, Tobias Vicey was not even heard of. Buster Later will be a, an absolute gun for the Netherlands over the next few years. And that was all on the back of also changing of leadership. Peter Saylor has been outstanding for Dutch cricket. He, he's a different form of captain. You know, Pete Boren was a was a follow me sort of guy. I'm going to lead it, do it my way. And he was brilliant at it. Whereas Pete's a bit more, let's have a conversation about this, guys. What do you want to do? What, do, what can we do? Let's have a, let's get involved. What's your role in the team? Um, and that, I think, like I say, at the end of 2019, when we won the World Cup qualifiers, if anyone saw the Netherlands, you would have thought that, gee, that's a really exciting team and a good team to watch. We haven't played for a year, so I don't know what that team's going to look like uh, soon. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get all the, the wagons back together and, and we'll be as competitive as anything in the Super League. Now you've definitely had some great success. So just branching off from that, if someone came up to you and said, what is your best piece of advice for being uh, a cricket coach? What, 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 would, you, what would you say? Again, you've got to be you. You, you can't manufacture um, a character out of a book because there's so many coaching books now. Do it this way, do it that way. You know, you, you have to find your own way. 
And the facts are, my, my job is to make myself out of a job. You, you want your system and your program and your playing group to be able to function without you. And that's the whole thing about coaching. And you know what? If your ego can't get out of the way and say, oh, no, it's all about me. I'm the coacher. And again, T20 is a bit different now because you get to go on the ground at, after 10 overs and, and say something. But at the end of the day, I prepare my players. And once they cross that white line, my, my job is done. I will analyse. I will pick it apart. But I'm not going to be yelling and screaming from the sideline. If Peter Saylor comes to me and wants to discuss something, 100%. For instance, in T20, he likes me to organise our batting order as we're going in the game because he thinks I see it a little bit better than, than himself because he just wants to concentrate on his batting. So I have a bit more hands-on in that sort of situation. But at the end of the day, you have to be you. You want to portray well, how you see the game is going to go and what you want to have from the game. You know, I'm very big on we, we're humble when we win, we're gracious in defeat. You know, that, that's one of the big things. But we're going to have fun. Put a smile on your face. This is supposed to be a game and let's let's go about it. And, you know, that that that's me. And, you know, I can be the grumpiest person going around. Don't get me wrong. If, if our players step out of line. And again, at the start of my time here at the Netherlands, I was pretty outspoken and pretty aggressive to the way we played because I think there was a culture of this is a bit of a holiday. And I had to stop that and stamp it out and had to go a different way and become make it become more professional. Um but like, like my players say now, gee, I don't think they've heard me raise my voice in the last year or two because I think everyone understands where we're going and what we're doing. They probably get grumpy when I haven't had sleep for about three days because my, my youngsters aren't sleeping or something. So they know when to stay clear of me. But yeah, mate, you, you change, you adapt with, with the squad you have. And, you know, I'll always say, I, I hope, that my players will all understand that my door is always open. And, you know, we've had some times here where players have had some issues and they've been able to pick up the phone. And to me, that means my message is getting across because, you know, we have to look after the person, not just the player, you know, because when you think about it, if you're looking after a, a senior team, generally you've got guys from 18 years of age to 33 and they're in all in different parts of their life and you do have to be able to help them through it and you know help them guide away so they can be the best cricketer they can be and that that's one part of it so yeah it's made I, I think to any young coach out there I would say go for it it's the most rewarding job in the world it, it's really enjoyable it can be frustrating at times but you know everything has those frustrations and just do it your way Ryan, perfect. Thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great talking through your career and all the best for the months ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Thanks for having me, mate. So Neil Kagram, Cricket Last Stories, Ryan Campbell. Thank you.